This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 487. Imposter syndrome, I believe, is when doubts become so pervasive that we self-sabotage. We don't apply for jobs we're fully qualified for. We continue to play small. We continue not to ask for things. What would you do if you had a little more confidence? Would you take the next step in your career, assume more leading roles, set boundaries, ask for a raise, or even run for office? Doubt and imposter feelings are a big reason many hold back and play small instead of going for what they truly desire at work, especially women. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a great first step. Today, we'll be taking the step of reading a book together called Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. It's written by author Kelly Thompson. And I'll be asking Kelly to share about the role values play in being a confident leader, why she believes the biggest career expense is the cost of our thoughts, why what others suggest is what's wrong with us might actually be something we should lean into, and lots more. Do you like reading books? Yeah, I kind of had a feeling that you did. Well, something I have found that helps us actually take what we read and put it into action is reading a particular book with other people and then discussing it, you know, like a book club. Well, that will soon be a new edition coming to Read to Lead Plus. You've heard me talk about in the past all that's available inside the Read to Lead community already. Things like a weekly business book summary, the chance to network with people who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do, to be spotlighted in front of all of our members for an entire month, the monthly themed AMAs, Ask Me Anythings that I host, our monthly guest experts, and more. Imagine all that plus a book club. Not only that, but a book club where the author of the book we're reading joins us for our meeting to discuss the book. Well, admittedly, we don't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed just yet. But if that sounds attractive to you, then I encourage you to become a Read to Lead Plus member sooner rather than later, because later this year, the price of a Read to Lead Plus membership is going to be going up. Right now, though, it's just $9 a month. And again, it includes all those things I just mentioned, plus the strong potential of a book club in the very near future, like in the next couple of months. My goal is to kick this off in October. And things are looking pretty good for that to happen right now. To find out more about Read to Lead, the community, and a Read to Lead Plus membership, just go to jeffbrown.me right now. You can try it free for two weeks, see if you like it. And then after that, again, it's just nine bucks a month. But if you decide for whatever reason you don't like it, you're under no obligation to continue. Again, that trial lasts for 14 days. One more time, that web address is jeffbrown.me to find out more. Kelly Thompson is a women's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. She's coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. She's the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program and a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business Coach of the Year. She's been featured in Forbes, Market Watch, Parent Magazine, HuffPost, and Working Mother as well. Her new book is called Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. Thank you so much for being here, Kelly. I'm excited to dive into this with you and really, really glad that we connected. 
Likewise. One of the things you talk about in the book that I want to go into more detail later is this idea of energy and how that impacts our job and, and our success and our job and, and, and the things that we do. And I've written a little a bit about this as well. But one of the things you talk about is, you know, hey, if, if we're in a good place, maybe 90, 95% of the things we do are things that give us an energy surge, but there's always that, you know, five, 10% that's the crap sandwich, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I know, I know for you, uh, at the end of every month, it's reconciling the books. So that's your crap sandwich. But I got to know, what kind of chocolate specifically do you like to chase that down with? <laughs> I'm a dark chocolate fan. Okay. <laughs> and you'd be happy to know that like I don't have to eat it as much because since the book has been published, that has been another point in my business, which I have successfully outsourced. So I do huh. take my own advice and somebody else just sends me an email when they have a question <laughs> on my reconciliation. I'm like, this is so much better. And it is. Yeah. It, you just don't realize sometimes how draining things are. Until you don't have to do them anymore. And you're like, oh man, like that sort of energetic dread hung over me for a full week and I didn't even realize it, you know? Yeah. Well, one of the things you talk about in the introduction of the book, and it's kind of, I guess, the official starting point for me and to help kind of set some of the context for the rest of the conversation, you talk a bit about what the book isn't, what the Mm -hmm. book is not designed to teach us. So can you expound on that maybe a little bit? Yeah. So let's just back that up even further. I'm an avid reader. And I've wanted to write a book since the time I was a little girl. I just didn't know what I was going to write about. And I do remember sitting in my boss's office, like kind of just talking about this. I've always wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to be an author. I just don't know what it's going to be about. But what I know is it won't be a leadership book, you know, and of course the universe laughed. And here's why, because I was comparing myself to so many other leadership books on the market. And remember at the time, we're talking 2008. So women didn't write leadership books. All the leadership books were written by men. And it was all very like strategy, hard charging. This is who you have to be to be successful. And you must follow this formula. And don't get me wrong. A lot of those were really helpful to me in my career. I've read some great ones. Like I love Good to Great by Jim Collins. Great book. But it all just felt like I had to fit into this little box. And so, you know, as I grew up in my career as a woman leader in mostly male dominated industries, and as I found my own way and coached my clients, one of the things that was always true for me is like, we need to find the thing that's most true for you because so much of what got me in trouble in my life was following some prescription of what I thought I needed to do or who I thought I should be. So what this book is not, is it is not a 10 list of ways to be more confident. It is not a, you have to act this way to be confident and successful. What it is not is all the things that you need to do or change about yourself to look a certain way or be a certain way or feel a certain way. And it was really important for me to make this book both and. So both calling the systemic issues that are in play in corporate America today that impact a woman's confidence, while also saying there are some things about you that we need to tap into. And yes, you can use some of these things that you're already good at that are innate in you to help you thrive in spite of those circumstances, because we're not going to change the systems overnight. Be super cool if we could. It's not going to happen. So how do we advocate for changes in the systems while also showing up in a way that feels in alignment with your values to you so you can thrive? Mm. Well, let me ask you to expound on that. You mentioned values. I'd love for you to to give me a little bit more about the role that values play in being a confident leader and, and determining you know, what those values even are. Yeah. You know, and for folks who are leaders, 
let me just level set with you. When I first kind of thought about values, like I rolled my eyes. I mean, come on. You know, <laughs> I remember sitting in corporate America saying, we need to have a values clarification discussion. Or you'd go to your website and say, these are our corporate values. Corporate values always felt like marketing language to me that people just didn't really follow up on. Mm. But it was through some really hard choices in my life, just to be totally transparent, which I talk about the book. I had found myself on the other end of you know failed jobs and fa- honestly failed relationships, a divorce, mm. calling off a wedding. And what I realized was is I didn't know what I stood for. You know, I just walked around the world thinking that other people just wanted what I wanted. I didn't realize how often I was conforming to what other people wanted or who they needed me to be because I thought, oh, if I just do that, then I'll be happy. And the big aha for me was if I don't know what I stand for, then what am I falling for? And that's how values really came, you know, into picture for me is I got very clear about what my non negotiables were. I got in life and work, I got very clear about what I would no longer tolerate. And that really helped me define this is what I stand for. And in the book, I say my my values are love, respect, family, creativity, and learning, which is still true. Mm -hmm. But what that helped me do and what it helps my clients do is when we get very clear about what our values are and what our known negotiables are and what things we are no longer going to tolerate, it helps us make decisions because it gives us the discernment not to, to tell the difference, not between right and wrong but between what looks right and what is right. So when my leaders are out there leading, you have to make really impossibly hard decisions as a leader. Sometimes you're going to have to lay people off or you're going to have to cut a budget or you're going to have to have a really hard conversation. When you know what you value and what you stand for as a leader, you can look back and ask yourself, I'm going to have this really impossibly hard conversation in alignment with my values. So at the end of it, no matter how hard it was, I can feel good about how I showed up Mm. or I can make this decision in alignment with what I value. So that when I look back on this in five years, I feel proud about how I decided because I use my values as like that guidepost for discernment Mm. and not some list or someone else's advice of what I thought I should do. So when it's a yes, it's a heck yes, right? Yes, yes, (laughs) absolutely. I know when you left the corporate world, one of the first places your mind went was expenses. Okay, I got to I got to do this, I got to do software, I got to do this thing. And you you learned eventually that those things weren't the costliest expense. You hadn't taken into account and and I had never quite heard it put this way, the cost of your thoughts. What did that look like for you? Yeah. Well, so I joke with all my clients that having a paycheck come in every two weeks can hide many deadly sins. <laughs> you know, you don't realize how you procrastinate in corporate or how often we say things like, Jeff, we're just going to wait for that meeting in two weeks when the executives meet and then we'll decide. Because when you go off on your own, you start to realize, oh, I'm not getting paid every other Friday, no matter when these executives meet or how long I delay these decisions or how long I push off this product launch. Mm. Because when you are running your own business, all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, if I want to make money, I have to put things out there for people to purchase. Like that's the basic fundamental way that businesses make money only everywhere you go. And so what I realized was my biggest expenses were not the cost of my website or the tools I needed. It was all the junk in my head of saying, ooh, I can't launch this yet. Ooh, it's not ready yet. If I say this on social media, what will people think? If I launch this program, what if people think it's stupid? You see in corporate, I could have some of those junky thoughts, but you know, if we kind of pushed it back, no big deal. I still got paid. <laughs> but those expensive thoughts, you know, thoughts that I say cost us in our peace, 
in our potential, and ultimately in our paycheck. All that sitting and stewing and all that anxiety that was causing me to procrastinate and not launch things was keeping me from making money in my business. Mm. And I really tie that back to, I had this in corporate and I know my teams did. It's just that we didn't really think about it, about how costly it was because you know the payroll was still going to come through. You know, I think it's natural to have doubts. I think you would agree with that based on what mm-hmm. I've read. Limiting beliefs, as is, is you're talking about, is another issue entirely. How do you differentiate between natural doubts and imposter syndrome? Yeah, this is a question I asked. To like, I like to ask a lot of my audiences because, you know, imposter syndrome is now the new big buzzword. You know, back when I was in corporate, I felt imposter syndrome. But in 2010, I mean, we weren't we weren't talking about that. That wasn't mm-hmm. really a term. And the way that I like to describe it is that doubt is a normal, healthy human emotion. Like if you are normal and you are healthy, you will feel doubt every time you stretch your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are people in this world that don't feel doubt. And they're sociopaths, Jeff. They're the people that we watch on Dateline every Friday night where we sit there and we're like, you know, the dude really could have benefited from a little more doubt before he thought that he was going to get away with killing his partner, right? You know, totally normal. I've talked to CEOs of, you know, top companies and I've asked them, you know, hey, you know, gosh, did you feel doubt as, you know, you've risen up in your career? I remember Indra Nui, the CEO of Pepsi told me, she's like, oh yeah, all the time. Successful leaders have transformed their relationship with doubt. Imposter syndrome, I believe, is, a you know, I think there's systemic causes. It's when we don't see ourselves in the rooms where decisions are made. Mm. You know, imposter syndrome is more prevalent when we've been experienced uh, racial discrimination or brilliance is prized above all else. Mm. Imposter syndrome, I believe, is when doubt becomes so pervasive that we self-sabotage. We don't apply for jobs we're fully qualified for. We continue to play small. We continue not to ask for things. And so I really encourage folks to really stop and ask themselves, is this just normal everyday doubt that we feel when we're like doing a big scary thing? Because that's so normal. Doubt keeps us humble. It keeps us connected. It keeps us curious. You know, or is it imposter syndrome? I am consistently self-sabotaging. I am consistently not applying for jobs. I am consistently not asking for things that I deserve. And so, you know, I think it's just really helpful. There's no right or wrong answer, but just the ability to pause and ask yourself, what am I feeling can help just give us a lot of useful information about where we like, you know, what's the right next thing to do. I found fascinating too, some of the studies you shared around this that say that when it comes to applying for jobs, the line of demarcation for men seems to be around, well, if I match about 60% of the requirements or more, I'll apply. And for women, it's like, 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got I got to match everything or I'm not going to apply at all. Yeah, it is. You know, LinkedIn had done some research around that um, that they published, but I spent many years in HR. So anecdotally, I can tell you that there is absolute truth in this. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, you know, posting jobs, I remember getting resumes or emails from, I, again, I don't want to make generalized sweeping comments, but men tended to be like, this job looks awesome. Who do I got to talk to? Whether they were qualified or not, you know, they might have saw something that looked cool and they're like, I want that. Mm. Where women would see a job posted and they would come to me and they'd say, oh my gosh, Kelly, this looks so exciting. This is the posting I've been waiting for. But when I looked at the qualifications, I meet like, you know, eight of the 10. Do you think I need to go back to school? Do I need to get a certificate? And I'm like, oh, please, no, like apply for the job. Because what I often tell them is, hey, here's an HR secret. I spent a good chunk of my HR career writing job descriptions and writing job postings. And when we sit down with the manager Mm. and we put in the qualifications, 
yeah, there might be a couple non-negotiables, but some of the other ones in there are like ideal wish list. And so often, and I know leaders have said this and HR folks have said this, we've hired people who are just simply fantastic because they're talented and they're a values fit. And maybe they only met, you know, the bare, bare minimum, but we hire them because they're just it. So I say, you know what, really, we need to slow down and stop putting so much weight into these, but there really is a gender difference in the two. Mm. And, and you've, you've said already, you know, some of this is systemic. Some of this maybe is, is learned behavior. What extent of this, if you know, would you say is, is how we're wired? Is there any of this that has to do with just how women and men are wired differently? Or is it, is it mostly after the fact? Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me, and I am not a sociologist, so I probably couldn't give you the most scientific answer, but here's what I know factually. Remember that in the not too distant history, women could not even open a bank account or have a credit card in their name until 1974. So for many of us, that's our moms. That's our mom's generation. And remember, that was a workplace that was built by men for men, because just in the times men worked, women stayed home. So remember that our parents' generation, for many listeners, was raised with this men work, men ask, men do the things, men talk about money. Now, women, can you please support Can you please just be grateful? Can you please be nice and kind and kind of hover around in the background? I'm so grateful that my daughter, she's heading off to college in two weeks and she just has a much different message. And so I think a lot of it is cultural. You know, there's just an attitude that, you know, you know, men see things and they've always seen themselves in the rooms, always. Mm -hmm. So like, well, I'll just go for it. I mean, because... We've always been there, but I think, you know, women and especially people of color, you know, have not seen themselves. And so it's always been a, can I do that? Can I be there? It's just different. And so I really like to set context around not too recent history and some of the cultural messages that continue to be pervasive. I saw people who looked like me in positions of leadership as I was growing up and early in my career. But I struggled for the longest time, too, mm-hmm. with seeing myself in those positions or feeling like I belonged in certain places. I mean, we all suffer from imposter syndrome to one degree or another. But despite the fact that I had all these examples around me, it took me 20 years to get to a point where I felt like there was a place for me. I'm not crying about it. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I'm just, <laughs> I, I, I think it, it's, um, I think sometimes more universal than, than we realize, even for those of us who had those examples. I, and I think part of that for me was early on in my career, I had really bad examples of male leadership, really bad examples. And I didn't want to be that. And I thought, well, if that's what leadership is, that's probably not for me. <laughs> I love that you're so vulnerable in saying that. Well, uh, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and let's just be honest. So one of the things I talk about a lot is these gender expectations don't just hurt women. Mm. They hurt everybody. Because remember, you just beautifully described that in your upbringing, that was the way. Mm. And if you want to be a leader, you need to be that way. And you were like, no, that's that's not for me. <laughs> but how many men were encouraged to actually be like, that doesn't feel good. I don't like this. This is not who I am. I feel imposter syndrome. Men have not been told it's okay to talk about their feelings, to talk about, no, I'm a collaborative, sensitive you know, leader, like they're like, well, you can't lead that way. So I think you just really depicted this really beautiful struggle and tension. Mm. This is not just one way gender expectations. It's both way gender expectations. And I think the more we can just get comfortable that leadership looks like many things, 
mm. in many different ways with many different qualities. I think it benefits everybody. You know, we, you talked a little bit earlier about you know the benefits of being yourself. I, I know you were given some some feedback early in your career around the aspects, certain aspects of your personality that might rub people the wrong way. Why do you believe that often what's wrong with us is is actually something we should should lean into. Yeah. So yes, early on in my career, uh, well, it's not even early on in my career. I mean, let's let's just be honest. I was talking with my parents about this the other day. My whole life, like I've been told, you're too direct, you're too blunt, you're too unemotional. Like you need to like, you know, have a little bit more empathy with people, you know? <laughs> I mean, I've just been told a lot of things. And you know what? Let's just pause for a minute. They're right. I'm not advocating that we're going to go around the world and just be blunt and brash and rude to people and be like, well, that's just the way I am. That's not what I'm advocating. Yeah. What I'm saying sometimes is I think sometimes on our qualities, especially those qualities that don't fit gender norms, Mm -hmm. we tend to just kind of over rotate on hiding them and censoring them and not using them. You know, one of the stories that I tell in the book, and it's it's one of the most commented on stories, so I'll just briefly recap it here, is my great-grandma ran a thousand-acre farm and ranch in western Nebraska. Her husband was on the railroad, and so she ran the shop. Mm-hmm. And she had a name around town because even though she was only four foot eleven in stature, lady had a big personality. <laughs> I mean, she would walk in. And she would go toe to toe with business owners who were men. And because she had worked from such a young age, like she knew the costs of things. She would negotiate things to the bottom dollar. Her husband, unfortunately, passed away in 1961, I believe. Mm. So remember, she cannot get a loan. There's no such thing as getting a credit card, bank, no bank account in her own name. She can't sign checks. So what does she do? She's going to run that farm on cash. (laughs) So she's still negotiating to the bottom dollar. She's buying farm equipment with cash. She can't get, you know, insurance. And, you know, she, she got a name for herself. People called her bossy. They called her shrewd. They called her a witch. But what I always remember is because she was those things, she was able to sustain a life for her family when most widows would have gone into poverty. Mm-hmm. She was able to sustain this thousand acre farm and ranch and hire and employ people. She was able to create not only a legacy for her family, but she was able to sell all of these crops to feed other families as well because she was all those things. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with really any of my leaders, but women especially, I really encourage them to ask themselves, what have you always been called? Mm-hmm. Too sensitive, too direct, too bossy, too assertive. Okay. Well, because you are those things, what does it uniquely allow you to do? And I get so many answers. For me personally, being direct meant I could be an HR person and sometimes tell people hard things just directly without beating around the bush. Mm. But we also have to blend that in alignment with our values. And so this links back to the values work. And so, you know, I'm not going to be blunt and rude, but I can be direct and respectful. I can be direct and loving. I can be direct and be creative in my delivery. And so it really just teaches them, let's stop self-censoring because it's exhausting. Let's stop believing this myth of executive presence. Let's really own what's unique about our approach and blend it in alignment with our values so that you know we feel good about meeting the challenges that are meant for us to, to solve. And I know she, she lost uh, your great-grandmother, a son at 21, I think. Yes, she did. But uh, I mean, if, as if it couldn't get bad enough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when she passed away, she left a little bit of a surprise for her two daughters, didn't she? <laughs> she did. So when they went in to clean out her 
safety deposit box in the bank, they found cash rolled up like old school, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly what the number is because you're calling me on the spot, but I think the equivalent was like something to the effect of like $200,000 for each of her daughters, like rolled up in cash. I mean, she was the lady that had cash under her mattress, cash rolled up in security (laughs) deposits. Because remember, you know, she passed in 1981. So, you know, she had seven whole years of having her own bank account, you know, just a different time. Yeah. So many of us, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, are in a job that's not a good fit, at least in part because we haven't taken the time to identify our purpose. Uh, I certainly spent a good part of my career, probably the first half of my radio career, (laughs) not identifying my purpose. Last half was much better than the first half. What should we consider when attempting to, to drill down into that? Yeah. A couple of things I talk about in this chapter and what really caused me to look at it too was it sounds like you've been in radio for a while and I spent like 12 years at the same organization. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to be blinded to what your purpose is because you know what? The company I worked for has stellar reputation. (laughs) Everybody in town wanted to work there. I had a nice title. I had a good salary. I had great benefits. And if we're not careful, those sort of things can really blind us because like, oh, it's like the golden handcuffs. This is so good. I'm getting paid so good. Just close your eyes and keep going, but it just doesn't feel good. You know, sometimes like quote unquote, good jobs can feel kind of bad. And I had kind of had that aha moment where I'm like, this is not a fit. I mean, I know this organization raised me, but this something's not right. I don't feel good. So I kind of had to learn to ask myself some questions. And the the first it's, it's a series of five questions. I call it a career alignment check that folks can ask if they're kind of wondering, is this right? Am I in the right role? And the first question is this, do my values align with the organization's values? Not just the values that they have plastered on the website, but I want you to actually think, how does the organization make decisions? Mm. Where does the organization spend money? Because where people spend money will tell you what they value. Like, does that align for you? You know, for me, I knew it wasn't because the organization was unwilling to spend money on learning. Learning was a value of mine and I was a training and development manager. Like we had a values conflict there. So that was question number one. Do my values align with the organization's values? Question number two, do I align with, you know, am I excited about the organization and who they serve? Am I even excited about the customers and the things that they do? Question number three is, you know, what is my energy level? on the close of most business days. You know, so when you're, you know, logging off your computer or you're driving home, do you feel that good, happy, tired energy? Like, oh, I did some good stuff today. Or the majority of the time when you're done, are you wiped with no energy for anyone else or anything else because you're just exhausted? Mm. Question number four is, do I have the opportunity to use my best talents here somewhere? You know, if it's maybe not in my department, like, is it, you know, somewhere else in the organization? Mm. Question number five is, is the work moving me closer to my career vision and goals? Mm. So when you really think about the role that you're in, sometimes we land ourselves like in challenging roles that, you know, for a minute, like, oh, I don't know. But sometimes you can ask yourself, but am I learning a valuable skill here that is big picture moving me closer to where I want to be? And so when I ask folks to really think about those five questions, you know, if you are saying yes, or it's good to at least three of them, you know, 
you can probably stop and ask and just say, you know, maybe I just need to have some conversations internally with my leader and realign some things, you know, but if you're only answering yes to, you know, less than three, we really need to take a hard look. You know, number one, I always encourage people to have conversations inside their organization first. Let's try to fix where we're at first, because all too often I see people not trying to fix or find their part in it first. And then they make a career change and they just bring that same junk into their new company. And so it's like, let's always try to fix where we're at first before we think that like the grass is greener somewhere else and someone else will give me what I need. Mm. You, you mentioned energy. And when we talked at the top of the conversation about a particular activity that doesn't give you energy and you've since delegated that, which is which is great to hear. One of the things I try to do is is color code everything on my digital calendar. The things that, that, that give me energy are green. The things that zap my energy are red. And the things that are sort of neither here nor there are orange. And so going into a day or a week, I can kind of glance and go, okay, what do I need to be prepared for? And I can also look and say, okay, there's three back-to-back red things. How can I you know, put some green in between or, or, or add some orange to something that's normally red or what have you? What would be an example of you taking something that maybe you've decided or, or, or come to the conclusion, I can't not do this. I have to be the one to do this, but, I, but it's zapping my energy. How might you bring some, as I put it, orange or green to that otherwise red thing? You know, I usually do it at a time of day where I feel my best because there's nothing worse than to do something you hate when you're feeling your worst. <laughs> Good point. So like there's some emails I need to send in my business um, next week because I'm I'm launching a new program and I don't mind all the selling and the communication, but like when I sit about like typing emails and sending that out, like it's not something that like totally surges my energy. So like I have time literally blocked on my calendar in the morning when I'm sitting down, I'm eating something. I always feel better when I'm eating. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm just going to do it in the morning because I find that, you know, once I get those done, like I literally do not dread them all day because I think Mm. part of the thing that really makes it gross is the dreading of it. You know, I mean, the dreading of it sometimes is the worst part. So it's like, let's just knock this out in the morning. I'm going to do it with a snack. I know it has to get done. And once it's done, I know that. And I always too think about the results. Like, I don't love doing this, but I sure love the results of when I do this because I have a direct correlation that every time I do this, it works. So that helps too. I used to get really nervous. I know you identify with this. Uh, it's not the case anymore, or at least when the butterflies come, I I, I know how to get them to fly in formation now. Uh, when I used to give public talks, I would get so nervous that it was debilitating. Yeah. And I finally got to a point where I realized that when I got to the end of a talk, I had this euphoric feeling of confidence. I think in part because I got through it, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm still, I didn't die. I'm still standing here. And I looked forward to then like the Q&A, like I, I, really, I didn't want the moment on stage to end. So in future talks, then I would always tap into, remember how you felt at the end that last time? Let's let's feel some of that right now before, before we go into this thing. So we don't have to wait until the end. Yeah. I have a little phrase I love to use. I, I wish I would have thought about this in the book because it would have been much more impactful, but I always say <laughs> confidence is a side effect. Of taking action. Yes. And I always remember that because I think people always think, and I talk about this quite a bit in chapter two, is that people think that they have to feel confident before they do something. But you just beautifully described how I also feel before I speak. And I've been a corporate trainer and a speaker for over 15 years. I'm nervous and I'm doubtful and I'm anxious. And I think sometimes people think, well, I have to be confident or feel confident before I ask, before I apply for the job, before I share my idea, before I speak in front of people. And in the book, I say, well, no, you can do a thing while also feeling doubtful. Like there's that whole while also thing. Mm. But an even more succinct way is no, confidence 
is a side effect of taking action. Because when you take lots of actions, you have a lot of evidence then where you're like, oh, like I can do that. And that's mm. what produces confidence. It's not a feeling you feel lots of times before mm. something, unless you've done it a zillion times, like you've made a recipe a zillion times. So you just know <laughs> you don't need to follow it anymore, right? You just dump it all in. But no, it's the taking action that produces the feelings of confidence. How is it that intentionally doing less, and by the way, I love your acronym, how does that allow us to lead more? Yeah, I think especially for women, this is a hot topic right now with all my corporate clients. You know, women have what's kind of called the unpaid workload. And if you've never heard of the unpaid workload, I'll just briefly say it says that women take on, on average, an additional two hours per day of unpaid work at home. So at home, this is the cooking, the cleaning, the school drop-offs, the pickups, but even little things like uh, lots of times I'll ask my, you know, if I'm working in an organization, I'm working with men and women, I'll ask the men, how many of you know when your next child's doctor appointment is? And I'll get a couple hands, but most men are like, oh, it's the thinking of everything. It's the, when's the last time my kids have had a teeth cleaning? You know, it's, it's, it's the women who think of it. It's unpaid labor. It's all the mental space that happens, but it also happens at work. So one of the things that I've personally been a part of, and I personally observed, and I know that still happens, is when things need to get done at work, like admin things, like taking the notes, party planning, somebody's mm. getting married, reordering <laughs> supplies, you know, doing any sort of the emotional things around the office, like running employee resource programs. It's a lot of women who are being tasked to do those things. And that doesn't show up in a performance review. That doesn't show up many times in a bonus. That doesn't impact someone's salary or promotability. And so that's called unpaid labor at the office. And so, you know, not only do people just in general struggle to delegate and do less, but women also have then this added layer that they're expected to do more at work and home when it comes to, you know, physical and emotional and mental labor. And so, you know, what I really encourage women to do is to really stop and think about what sort of boundaries and expectations are you setting to kind of, you know, minimize this because it is really hard for you to accelerate your career in the organization if you are overworked and overwhelmed because of all of these extra burdens. So my less framework, just very briefly, since you said you enjoyed it, is L, learn why you say yes when you deeply want to say no. And there's four reasons in the book. The E is express your boundaries and expectations. Be clear about what you will or will not do. You do not need to say yes to everything just because they asked. Um, number three is a big one. In fact, it was so big that it, it might stand alone and be their own thing, mm. is shift your identity from doer to leader. I think lots of times where everybody struggles, men and women, is we promote our highest performers. Of course we do. Well, they've learned all their accolades from doing. So they keep doing. And so now they're a leader and they're doing their old job. Plus they're trying to coach and manage the people and it just doesn't work. We really right. have to make that mindset shift from doer to leader. Mm -hmm. And the last S is start delegating. Identify low stakes areas where you can start dumping, delegating or outsource so that you can start to build people's skills when the stakes are low. Like do not wait like most people do until you're so panicked and you're so overwhelmed that you try to delegate things when the stakes are high. Uh, you seem to have gotten a really good handle through experience in trusting what your body is telling you. What have you learned about that process? How have you benefited from trusting that? I think what you meant to say was, Kelly, it looks like you've got a really good handle on trusting your body from making really poor decisions, <laughs> not trusting it. That, yep, that would be the accurate. Um, so yes, we are now at chapter six, where I'm talking about how I've been married and I did not trust my still small voice. I said, you know, I don't 
don't know if you should walk down this aisle, but I ignored it and did it anyways, Mm. where I'd made some career decisions where, you know, I thought I was following good advice and it looked good on my Excel spreadsheet that, you know, (laughs) I love me a good Excel spreadsheet or my pros cons list, but I didn't listen to the nudging. And then it really reared its ugly head when I was engaged and we were about three months out for the wedding and I was just physically ill, like physically ill to the point where I needed to go see a doctor. Nothing was wrong with me. I was so tense from worry and stress from making the wrong decision. Mm. And I remember I had a coworker come in and I'm shortening the story quite a bit, but she basically said to me, she's like, Kelly, she's like, God is not the author of chaos. He's the author of peace. And I remember my whole body just relaxed because I was like, oh, peace. Well, I I know what that feels like, but that's not what I'm feeling right now. And in my body, having somebody just say, does this feel like dread or peace? I was like, oh, and I think if you're listening, I think you could just even ask yourself, imagine something that feels like dread, Mm. probably feel your body kind of tense up, tighten up. Maybe your throat closes a little bit. It feels heavy. But if I say, imagine something that just gives you peace, you're like, oh, right. It's like relief and light and airy. Mm. And I hadn't really thought about it again until I went through coach training. And just to give you context, like I grew up in banking, like I love me a good Excel spreadsheet. Everything's in my head. I'm a numbers girl. Like don't get me with any of your body stuff. So I thought I was going to like skip that section. Mm. But then I was like, well, you know, I did, I did the math and I was like, I paid for this. I better show up to this class. <laughs> well, in this coaching, they taught us how to scan our bodies mm. and what our body does when it's a heck yes. And I'll give you a clue. It usually feels light and airy and free and fizzy and exciting. Mm. And what our bodies do when something is a hell no. Mm. And I'll give you a clue. It's usually like our stomach sinks. It feels tight. It feels mm-hmm. constricting. And so in the book, I give way more details, but really learning to trust your gut is what I call your competitive advantage as a leader. I spent years in HR and in leadership development, and we focus on everything from the neck up, how to be strategic, ROI, give good feedback, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the new world of work is going to really require leaders who know how to go neck down. They know how to use their head, yes, but also their heart and check in with their emotions and what they value in this situation but also be able to really trust their gut. Like, am I getting a heck yes or a hell no here? You know, I'll land this with a final example. Jeff Bezos, I found this out after I wrote the book, as most good stories happen, as we know as authors. <laughs> um, he presented Amazon Prime to his board and numbers did not add up. Mm. Like it did not look good on paper, but Bezos was like, we got to do it. Like in his bones. And I think we've all had those feelings, those still small voices, those whispers, like in our gut. He's like, I got to do it. I can't not do it. I mean, I think we all know how Amazon Prime turned out, turned out pretty well for him. Mm-hmm. So now there's a few chapters we won't have time to get into in the interest of time. Amplify your voice, chapter seven, know your worth, chapter eight, and the last chapter, take your bravest next step. I haven't asked anything out of those chapters, but is there anything we've not talked about, whether it's from those chapters or others, that you want to make sure you have a chance to, to talk about and get across? Yeah, I think, you know, the bottom line of all of this, and I think this just kind of lands the plane back on where we started about what the book is not. Mm. You know, there's a story that I tell in chapter seven about finding your voice, because if I couldn't roll my eyes any harder about all the advice out there, there is about speaking up and finding your voice. And it would have been really easy for me as a former corporate trainer and a speaker to tell you the top 10 things you need to do to find your voice. (laughs) But there's a story that I tell in the book, and we'll just close with this. My husband and I had been married a year um, and we went to go to the Florida Keys to take a little vacation for our anniversary. And we had an afternoon to kill. 
And so we went to TripAdvisor, which is the knower of all things that are fun on vacation. And TripAdvisor told us, oh, you need to go to the Marathon Turtle Hospital. It had like a million five-star reviews. And we're like, okay, the TripAdvisor universe cannot be wrong. (laughs) So we go in and we think we're just going to touch some turtles and all that. Well, they bring us into this little room and they have us watch this video about sea turtles and how, you know, they have all these issues because of pollution and they're sick and, you know, they're not, um, they could be going extinct and all these sort of things. So, of course, I'm deeply worried now. And what they did say, though, was that sea turtles will only give birth on the beach in which they were also born. Mind blowing. Mm. Even though they swim away like 20,000 miles from that beach. Wow. And so me who is GPS dependent, raise their hand. And I'm like, okay, how does a sea turtle find their way back if they have swam away 20,000 miles? Because I know that if I'm in the ocean, I can't find my way back. Okay. Right, without right. some GPS. Yeah. And so the instructor was like, well, the earth's coastline has a magnetic reading and there's mm. something in a turtle that can read the magnetic coastline. And that's how they find their way back. Okay. Mind blow. Mm. So we go out, we touch all the turtles and everything. A year later, COVID hits. And so if you remember, maybe you don't remember, there was all these viral videos of like massive amounts of sea turtles being born on beaches, like more than ever. Mm. Because you see all the interference was gone. All the noise pollution in the ocean that was creating interference from their ability to find their way home, all the straws and all the junk, like all that interference that was keeping them from finding their way home was now gone because, you know, world shut down during COVID. Right. There was all these record numbers showing up. And I just had like this aha. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, you know, if God, our creator, put that sort of ability in a turtle to find their way back, imagine what has been put in us. And imagine what we're capable of if we just remove a little bit of interference. And so my bottom line, and I think it circles us back is like, you know, you're not going to find your voice. No, you're not going to find what you're meant to do and all these things. Like we just need to remove everything standing in the way of it. Like we just need to remove the interference. And that's really my goal with this book was really to not to give you all this advice. That's going to make you someone else than who you already are. It's about removing all the interference. So that you can go in and be like, well, who am I meant to be? And how do I remove everything that's standing in the way of it? Book geek that you are. And, and, and for book geeks, this is a particularly sometimes tough question to answer. Think about your career, books that have impacted you, books that maybe you find yourself recommending. What comes to mind? Oh, I know. This question is always so hard. Okay. <laughs> so when I think of the books that impacted me in my career the most, the first one that I will always recommend and send to other people is The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Like mm. that book has saved my rear end more than you know. <laughs> like I've read it twice. I've taken her online class. So helpful to me in my career in just really dropping some of my own BS. <laughs> I would say another book that has really been super impactful in my career. So I love reading career books, but lots of times I read books that have nothing to do with career because I find all the career lessons. And I love books by Michael Singer. So The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer is another one I really, really love because you know it's just all about your inner belief system. Mm. And I mean, <laughs> you bring that stuff to work every day. I would say another book that I really love that I've read more recently that I recommend to a lot of folks is My Life in Full by Indra Nooyi. Indra Nooyi was the former CEO of Pepsi. Okay. Gorgeous storytelling. 
Like it is an author's book. I mean, you talk about the things that you and I love, right? The look, the feel, the touch, the weight, but then you open it up and she's got pictures of when she was growing up in India and the richness of which she tells her career stories and seamlessly imparts the lessons, which is not telling you what to do, but like what she learned is just beautiful. So like those are the top three that that really come to mind. Mm, I love that, man. I don't know that any of those three have ever been recommended by a guest before. So we've got three new reads to follow up on. A year or so ago, I started teaching an online cohort called Note Making Mastery with four components, uh, collect, connect, crystallize, and create. Uh, the first three of which combine to ensure that the knowledge we bother collecting and, and, and learning from, we actually do something with. So I'd be curious to know, uh, I know as an author, you, you do a fair amount of research for that and, and obviously for a lot of other things in your, in your work as well. What are some of your systems or techniques or tools that you use to make sure that the things you learn don't get lost along the way and actually get turned into valuable content with your own unique lens for other people? Evernote. <laughs> That's my simplest answer. One word answer. I love it. <laughs> Evernote. Um, I started using Evernote back in like 2013. And let me tell you, like if I ever am at a loss for, oh, what should I write about in my newsletter this week? Like you can go find some gems back in 2013. But no, I mean, that is in its most simplest term, like Evernote, keeping ideas, you know, um, those sorts of things. But I would say the other thing too, is if something really inspires me, like I'm usually talking about it in a newsletter or social media. So I love to like read something, like reflect, immediately put it out into the universe, get people's responses to it, and then kind of integrate it that way into further ideas. But no, I, if, if we want to keep it simple through subtraction, we're just going to land with Evernote. Mm. Yeah, you really hit on something there that I, that I teach, and that's the importance of recognizing the building block nature of the things you collect, that the small pieces and getting feedback on those along the way is so important rather than building the thing, finishing the thing, and then seeking feedback on the finished product. So it's a good point to make for sure. Well, Kelly's book again is called Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. I'm a sucker for alliteration. I love that title. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being a part of the show. I really appreciate you being here. And I'm so glad you took the time to write this. Awesome. Thank you for having me. If I were to sum up our conversation with Kelly, it would be this. It's time to own who you are, trust yourself, and take your bravest next step. Somebody's counting on your unique calling. That's actually taken straight from the back of Kelly's book. To find out more about her book or to dig into our conversation a little more deeply, like the links and resources we talked about, to follow up and connect with Kelly online, you can go to the page on my website created just for that reason. It's called the show notes page, and you'll find it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 487 for episode 487. I'll also include a couple of other links there. One is to my online community I'd love for you to be a part of. Again, featuring in the very near future, in all likelihood, a book club starting in October. At least that's the goal. And there's also a link there to my flagship course called Note Making Mastery. Get all of that. Note Making Mastery, the Read to Lead community, and everything you need to know about this episode in Kelly's book at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 487. Well, next week, we welcome in a friend of mine who I'm delighted to have on the show for, if my count is correct, the fourth time. And what makes this visit particularly special is he was also the first ever guest on the podcast just over 10 years ago. I'm talking about New York Times bestselling author Dan Miller as we dive into his new book called An Understanding Heart. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. 
That's going to do it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Leaders read and readers lead.